So, you cannot bulletproof your life. It, uh, although I would imagine that every one of us in the room spends a lot of time trying to bulletproof our lives, you absolutely cannot bulletproof your life. Life has a way of bringing every person, everybody in this room, at some point, to desperation. Moments when you don't know which way to turn, moments, moments when you have no options, moments when there's no way out. This can be, life can be desperate. And I've imagined a few here. I just made these up. They weren't hard to make up uh, because I've seen all of these here at, in our little small community at least a couple of times. Uh, but their commonness does not make them less desperate. In fact, in my mind, it accentuates their desperation. So here they are. Uh, maybe imagine, some of you are getting on. Um, some of you are pushing that 4 number. So um, imagine that for some of you in the not very distant future, thank you, um, that you're just uh, thoughtlessly consuming uh, a glass of wine. That's your story anyway, at the end of the day. And it's your favorite wine, and you're sort of pouring the wine out of the bottle, and it's, God, it makes that happy gurgling sound as it hits the bottom of the glass, right? And something that's happening to you is the alcohol hits your head, and and you speak to it, and you say, I will drink you now, my dear friend, and uh, you will relax me. And in that moment, the wine in the glass will speak back to you, and it will snarl, and it will smile, and it will say, no, I will drink you now. And what was pleasure will make you a slave. Imagine, and it's not very hard to imagine, that without explanation, your lover will leave you. Leave you for another, no less. Somebody less worthy than you. And the space in your heart that held your lover so softly and warmly will be turned into a coffin of unforgiveness and bitterness. Maybe, maybe far out in your future, not too far for some of us, but much farther out in your future, so far out that you don't even need to really consider it at all. But imagine that a day will come when a beautiful young woman will come to your room and she will brush your hair and she will change you and put you in clothes that match. And she will seem like, to you like somebody you've known since she was just a small child, but you'll find yourself saying to her, Tell me again who you are. And she'll say, Dad, I'm your daughter. And maybe one day, one of your boys will take a fever, become very, very ill, and you will hear the doctor say, there's nothing more that we can do. And I believe that those must be the most desperate words a person could ever hear. Give me, give me, give me something good. Lyrics that describe a kind of desperation that will reduce you to a beggar, will cause you to demand, you'll be a demander, will bring you to just the, the edge of your existence. It'll just reduce you. 
Desperation is going to break you one day. And when it does, I wonder, who will you become? John recorded the miracles that Jesus worked, not only because he wanted us to see the power and the wonder that Jesus had, but because he wanted us to see something else, they wanted us to see something greater than just the miracle, although the miracle is a great thing. The miracle is a sign which points to something greater. In our desperate moment, our eyes, our eyes, if you've been desperate, you know your eyes just scour the horizon constantly looking for answers. answers. How come? What if? Why? Which? Your eyes go to and fro. They, they cannot rest. But miracles cause our eyes to look up, look up to where salvation comes, to see the color and depth of God's love for us, even when it seems like God is beyond every horizon. The miracle we're going to walk through, really sentence by sentence this morning, starts in John 4, John 4, 46. If you have a Bible tool on your phone or you have a Bible, you want to look through it with me, that's fine. We're going to have the words up here and you can read, up, read along with me that way too. The Apostle John, uh, the Gospel writer, uh, writes these words about this miracle. He says, Once more Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. So this is the setup. Jesus worked his first miracle in Cana uh, at a wedding. Wes talked about it last week. The big, the big sign there, the big something else there, was that although we look at life with scarcity, God uses that scarcity to create amazing abundance, amazing abundance. And in a way, this second recorded miracle is going to expand on that, that first sign, that first something else. So this sets up the place. It sets up the characters. Here's the main characters. There's Jesus. There's also this royal official. And there is a crowd, not expressly pointed out at this point, but it comes in later. And this crowd is diverse, all religious people for the most part, uh, but kind of two kinds of religious people, traditional religious people, uh, the Jews themselves and, and, and the disciples who are religious people, and, and this other group of, uh, of, uh, of religious people that are sort of uh, people that look down on other people, okay? So this crowd is mixed. So the royal official was likely someone within the ruling group in that province, inside Herod Antipas's court. He would have been regarded by the Jews and by the crowd as more or less a dog, an enemy. It's important to know that, that uh, Jesus is now going to show a way in which this something about our enemies to us. Herod was a provincial king. He, he was responsible for keeping the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, in his province. He was a puppet of the Romans. And um, if, he, if he kept the peace, he pretty much kept his seat. That's how that worked. And uh, he ruled indiscriminately, so, so, and so did his, his noblemen, his court uh, officers. These court officers were rich. They were abusive. They could seize your property. They could levy taxes on you. Uh, if you um, really got out of line, they could probably threaten your person. I'm not sure they could put you on the point of a spear, but, but they could threaten you for sure. And so here's the thing about these noblemen. 
These are the kind of people that, that get things done by making their neighbors desperate. I mean, that's how they get things done. They squeeze people. They shake them down. And this is the nobleman. Put a black hat on him, right? He's an enemy. So the crowd, let's talk about them for a minute. As this desperate moment unfolds in front of them, undoubtedly, some of them experienced this German word, schadenfreude. I don't know if you've ever heard that word. Great word. We don't have one like this in English. Germans uh, literally created this word, which literally means damaged joy, beautiful. The emotion or satisfaction that warms your heart when your enemy gets what's coming to them. Oh, so the nobleman's son lies near death. Fine, fine. Just goes to prove that he's not any better than the rest of us schmucks. Schadenfreude, universally human. Everybody experiences it. And absolutely anti-God. John continues. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now, I, I want to talk about this idea of enemies a little bit more. You know, I like to put black hats on the heads of my enemies. It makes it so much easier to have them in black hats and have my friends and people like me in white hats. But, you know, life just really, there aren't that many black hats and white hats. You know, when I look at this sentence here, these, what I think is that um, I'm seeing this guy with a gray hat. He's a mix of things. You know, I sense that this guy, although he has been a shakedown artist, that there's a kind of desperation in him that is reflective of the love that's in his heart. He'll do whatever it takes. The distance from Capernaum uh, to, to Galilee, that distance was like, was like 15 miles, like three hours of, of walking. It would be like, you know, if you had a sick child, taking the child, packing them up, getting through TSA, and flying to Dallas. And getting through TSA might be as bad as walking 15 miles or something like that. Uh, he's... There's love there. There's also tenderness. He, he, there's not simply monstrosity in this man. His heart's tender. And if there's tenderness, then he's not a monster. He's not a monster. He's a human. We like to make our enemies inhuman, but he's human. And if he's human, then he is loved and he is lovable. And at the end of all those things, there's just one question then who will love him? And I believe there's real respect in this man towards Jesus. He's not just sucking up to Jesus because he needs something. He's begging. And look at this. It is hard enough to get real with your friends. But this man is begging in the presence of his enemies. And he's on his knees. And he's showing Jesus respect because he knows Jesus can do this thing that he wants and he wants it bad enough. Jesus can heal his child. John continues. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, this response of Jesus has been so difficult for me for years. Um, 
if this nobleman is desperate, if he's tender, if he's respectful, then why is Jesus giving him a rebuke? I mean, because that is what this is. And I think that even though there's tenderness there and there is love there in his heart and there is respect, there's still something that's missing. And Jesus' love wants to work in him as well as for him. You know, when Kathy and I lived out in Oklahoma, one of the great things about living out there is still miss in the spring these huge, huge storms that come along. And there's no exaggeration when they come. Uh, you can see them for 40 or 50 miles off in the horizon. And they just start coming with these big, huge, these big, huge black walls. And you know, you know, you're like 30 minutes in advance, you're going to get hit. And hit is the operative word there. As they roll towards you, you start to hear them. You start to be able to see the lightning. And, you know, sometimes there are tornadoes there. Always there's wind. And always there's a lot of noise. Immense clouds. But as soon as that front passes over you, what comes behind it is this cool air just pouring out of the sky and pouring down with this fresh, life-giving rain. And it's all the storm, and it all belongs. You, you, you don't get the rains and you, without the lightning, and you don't get the lightning without the rain. You, you get it all together. So Jesus' response here, if you look at, as we look at this whole story, I want to give you an idea, different idea maybe, is a storm of unconditional love. And at the leading edge of this unconditional love storm is a rebuke. I mean, that's as hard as, as lightning, as thunderous as thunder, which is pretty thunderous, I guess. It blows trees down. It can knock down buildings, and it's still love. It all belongs. It all belongs. It belongs because... Jesus wants to convince him of something. He wants to convince him that he loves him, but he will not humor him. See, this, this man was powerful. And he was used to people coming and flattering him and humoring him and honoring him if they wanted to convince him of something. But God will not humor you. His love will not humor us. His love will humble us. God wants to work for this nobleman both in him or upon him and for him. He wants to work upon us and for us. You have to have both. You don't get one without the other. How often in our difficulties, in our calamities, in our desperation, do we negotiate with God? God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you or do that for you. It's tit for tat. It's even Stephen. It's God is a Coke machine. Um, God will not have that. That is not, a, that is not the relationship as he wants. He wants to be our father. He does not want to be our business manager. John continues with the story. Sir, come down before my child dies. This is what the nobleman says next. This is amazing. 
He's just taken the front of con- unconditional love, and he is still standing, and he repeats his request, Sir, come down before my child dies. The tenderness, the respect, the love, all the best things are intact. Now he's using the word sir, so now humility is in place, but it's still imperfect. Jesus is still working upon him. Look at, look at his request. It seems reasonable, right? First passing. But then you start to realize he has conditions for Jesus to do work. First of all, he requires that Jesus comes to his house to heal his child. He requires that Jesus come and actually be present. He's also requiring that Jesus heal his child before the child dies. As though he has forgotten the old stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha and how they raised people from the dead. And Jesus is a prophet of greater standing. He could have raised the child. When Wes talked last week about scarcity, this is such a great example of a religious prayer of scarcity. Instead of being open to God, your time, your way, however, I'm here, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, John has the next words as this. Jesus looks at the man and he replies, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. Astounding, right? No more words. No more telling God how to do what he wanted done. No more begging. Done. So at at this point, at this point in the story, we're going to read through a little bit further and you're going to see, but at this point in the story, the miracle is actually done. We're going to find out in a couple more sentences here that the son's fever broke at this moment. So the miracle, the sign has come. But can you guess... What is the greater or the something else that this miracle is pointing towards? What can you guess? I think it's pointing to the ridiculousness of our need to see before we believe. Seeing is believing, right? It's bringing that fundamental understanding of life down. It's telling us that everything, as Keller said a couple of weeks when we watched this tape here a couple of weeks ago, Everything you think is wrong. Seeing is not believing. So it's coming, it's revealing that. The religious people in the crowd looking at the nobleman and believe, probably believe he's not desperate enough. And so they want to see that he has really changed his ways before they let him off the hook. Doesn't this sound familiar? The desperate nobleman wants to see. God do the miracle his way, not God's way or Jesus' way, in his time, in his place, according to his expectations. So who are you? The nobleman or the crowd? Believing does not come by seeing. We believe when God sees us with unconditional love, It's a love that works in us and for us. Now this is, I want to, I took this cycle, these comparison of two cycles I'm going to show you now from a guy named Richard Rohr. I made a couple of small adjustments, but I think this is remarkable. 
Um, I, the first cycle, these two cycles are going to show how it is that we relate to God and to each other. And I just tell you, I pretty much related uh, to you and to my wife and to my family and to God in this first cycle for virtually my entire life. And I've always known that it didn't quite work. And then I came across this other cycle not very long ago, and I was like, oh, my, oh, my. So here it is. Here's the first cycle. This is how we typically look, be like. In moments, life comes to us, and it makes us desperate, right? This desperation comes. And when we fall into calamity or when we've made error, um, we become desperate, and there's a consequence or there's a punishment that we endure. And out of that consequence or punishment comes what religious people call repentance, which means turning from that path and going a different direction. And what comes behind repentance then is transformation. And that is the standard model that a lot of us work with. After transformation, the cycle continues. More desperation and calamity is revealed. And this cycle continues on and on and on. What the story of this miracle points towards is a different cycle. It begins in the same place. It begins with desperation. But the desperation is met with unconditional love. Unconditional love is the consequence of desperation. That is really good news for desperate people. It's not good for you if you're not very desperate. Desperation is met with unconditional love, which is met with transformation. This is a different order, which is then yields repentance or a turning in direction, which then makes us open to more desperation which then gives us more unconditional, avails us to God's unconditional love, which yet, and around and around and around. And this is a monumental difference. The big difference I want to focus on in the model, although there's two differences, the one place I want to focus is the substitution for unconditional love being met with love instead of being met with consequence. And I am going to give you my best three reasons for why you want this and why this is true. First of all, the true part, the Bible says it pleased God to crush Jesus and that he bore all of our infirmities and iniquities for our sins. Now look, then if you are in the midst of some calamity or crisis and you respond in trust towards God's unconditional love, how much punishment is left for you? How much consequence should you be getting from God? Somebody say it. Nada. Nunca. Zero. Zero. There is no condemnation for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. How much? There is none. There is none. Okay, second. Two. And I will say this till my tongue bleeds. If you make me. Consequence never healed anyone. Love is the healing power of God. What do desperate people really need? They need God. And God is love. If the transforming forces in your life are consequence and punishment, you will become a monster. We become the forces, we become the things that we are changed by. And if consequence is the thing and punishment is the thing, you will become a monster. Become like Christ, who loved us 
like a hurricane, like the song we sing here and we're going to sing later says. Love, be loved by him as though he was your hurricane. And love those around you that are struggling like a hurricane, like the hurricane that you are. That's two. Third, now when someone has made bad choices, they're addicted. And I'm going to use the S word, not my wife's favorite S word, but the sin word here. Okay. I'd say, when I left this morning, I said, I don't have one bit of humor. So I just decided to make it at her expense. <laughs> but she'll get even because that's what this talk is about. Um, so, okay, back on track. Okay, when somebody is really chaotic, it is so hard to lead with unconditional love. You know why? It's not them. It's you. You're the limiting factor on the unconditional love, not them. I find it hard to give people unconditional love because I want to be sure they're on the right path before I love them. Like, I don't want them wasting my love. I don't want them staying a drunk. Stop controlling people. Being sure is a need for control. I'm like the Jew standing in the crowd when I want to be sure. I'm not wrong, and you're not wrong to think that a heart must be broken in order to be changed. But like Neil Young said, only love can break your heart. I can beat you with a stick. I can make you go where I want you to go. I cannot change your heart with a stick. When I was younger, I had a tremendous temper. I'm sure I still have it. It's mostly repressed. Um... (laughs) My sister loves to tell the story, God bless her, that one day I threw a knife at her and stuck it in the cabinet next to her head. Nice, right? One day, after I finished beating her up, my dad came home, and he hit me, not like a spanking, with a closed fist. Here. Not my head, but here. And he said, if you ever hit her again, I'll make it worse. I stopped hitting her. I didn't stop hating her. It was many years later when... I met Jesus' unconditional love, that that changed. My father, who was not a Christian, remarked that the one thing that he could tie in, he could tap into that was different about me after I experienced that unconditional love was that my temper was gone. Only love is going to break your heart. At this point, I know this is the hard point. You might be saying, you don't get it, Kurt, you don't get it. What if this person is just verbalizing acceptance of love, but they're still as destructive as ever? And I think the response here is, okay, seven times 70. Go back, the unconditional love that like, is like a storm. Go back and be a hurricane. In my own story, I have something right now going on. I don't even have words for it entirely. But if I do not remain desperate every day, I don't cry, I won't cry out. But in my daily desperation, I get enough grace, I get enough unconditional love to move forward. Seven times 70. The story goes on, starts headed towards the end here. While he was still on the way, the servants met with him. This is the nobleman now. The servants met with him. 
with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired us at the time when his son got better, they said, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So signs come with proofs in time. The nobleman realized that the fever broke, not by his own declaration, but by Jesus' declaration. Such wisdom, not my time, not my way. Your ways are higher than mine. Your time is better than mine. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Say yes. And it wraps up this way. So this nobleman, he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this nobleman went and begged for the life of his child. He admitted he was absolutely powerless. He went and begged for this in the presence of his enemies. And he was wanting just one thing, that his son would be healed. In scarcity, he prayed. In abundance, he received the salvation of his entire household. Can you imagine for the generations that how many generations on after that, that this story echoed forward, that there was your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, was this child who was healed because can you imagine that? Can you imagine the way that this love echoes down generation after generation after generation? He wanted one child healed and the household was saved. The gospel, bring it together this way, the gospel is not that the determined are in and the desperate are out. The gospel is that the fragile are in and the stubborn are out. Now, it's Lent in season, and those of us that um, are probably uh, very imperfectly practicing Lent will be asked a lot of questions. Usually, it'll be like, people ask you, so what are you giving up for Lent? And um, there was an article in Time Magazine this week. It was really good about Pope Francis, and it said, uh, this writer said, if you want to change your body, perhaps alcohol and candy is the way to go. But if you want to change your heart, a harder fast is going to be needed. So the hard fast, I, I want us to suggest for those of you that are like wanting to d- take a deep dive on this, is to give up your stubbornness. Fast from your stubbornness. Yeah, it's great news. Stop now, please. Or I'll make you do burpees. And the beatdowns will continue. Uh, let's fast from stubbornness. And specifically, let's fast from the stubbornness of needing to see before we believe. Where there's stubbornness, allow fragility. Embrace your kryptonite. Take that desperation to God. Beg in the midst of your enemies. And he will meet you with unconditional love. That love is going to make you whole. That love is going to make your family whole. That love will one day make the whole world, whole, all things will be summed up in Christ one day, and it will be by love because love will be the last thing that remains. Everything else will burn. Believing does not come by seeing. We believe when God sees us with unconditional love, a love that works in us and works for us. Let's pray. A simple prayer. God, Thank you for loving us with unconditional love. See, thank you for seeing us 
with eyes that change us. Amen. My name, excuse me, my name is Mark Dickman. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to introduce a practical application to what Kurt was just talking about. As we today do something actually we've never done before in 15 years. And uh, so those of you who are a part of the Dominican Republic team, I'd like you to get ready. First, I'd like to call up, though, um, Linda Miller, Lori Landry, and Laura Straw. Some of you have, and as they make their way up, I had my, uh, an idea of what I wanted to do, and then Kurt's uh, talk changed that. First of all, I want to bring you up. And uh, some of you have been buying cookies at the bake sale to support the team. Some of you have been dropping off your children at the parents' night out. Is Linda here this morning? No, I'm taking a picture. Okay. Um, and so some of you have been hearing about this team that's going to, to the D Dominican Republic. So one of the things I want to talk about briefly this morning is what this team is and what it's not. Uh, Laura and Lori and Linda, who's somewhere in the building. Oh, she's not here. Well, conveniently so. That sounds like um, These... Two people, and Linda who's not here, are the project leaders or the team leaders. And they are the chief relational builders of what the team is going to experience. Uh, this team will be going as a result of Dominican Republic leaders who are saying, please come and support the work that we're doing in some of the most fragile areas of the Dominican Republic. And because of the vision of this team, because of the relationships that they have built over time with leaders on the ground in the Dominican Republic, a whole group of other members of this community and some other friends are joining them, nice, are joining them in what they're about <laughs> this year. She's right there. <laughs> I'll get out of here. Linda is actually the catalyst for this whole thing, so it's interesting that she's not here because she's been going with her family for many, many years to build and cultivate these relationships. So I'm also going to call up the rest of the members of the team. And if you're here, please come on up. Kenneth Straw, Christy Morley, Lika Garnett, Libba Armenta, Denise and Tom Fenimore, Mary Whitesides, Melissa Needham, Melissa King, Mandy Baisden, Dusty Jensen, Stephanie Price, Donna Douglas, Shelley Tuttle, uh, probably Paula Carricker is not here, uh, Sharon Green, and Jen McGee. So if you would, bow your heads and we'll pray. Holy God, we want to be the type of people that Kurt talked about this morning. People whose hearts swell and burst because you have been so good to us that you've forgiven us, that you've given us new life in Jesus, and we want to be a part of helping to make all things new here in Charlotte and around the world. We want to respond to your prompting and your calling, and we want to follow the lead of a team like this that says, we will go if you call us. Thank you for their hearts to listen. Thank you for their hearts to, to go and serve. Thank you for their hearts to come alongside of leaders who are saying, would you come and help? And in, advance the work that is happening here in the DR. So we pray for your protection on them. We pray for every logistical detail to come together flawlessly. We pray for a great flight. We pray against sickness. We pray against 
any dissension. We pray against any frustration. We pray that it would just be a smooth trip and that everyone would be healthy and they would come back healthy. And we pray for these great relationship opportunities that this team will have a chance to develop. Neighbors that they'll get to meet, conversations that they'll get to have, lessons that they'll learn, uh, invaluable lessons that they'll bring back to our community. Thank you for preparing their hearts even now. God, what if this is the start of something really, really big? Warehouse engaging with our neighbors half a world away and even just due south and how we can extend your kingdom in beautiful ways. Bless this team, protect them, fill their hearts with joy. And Jesus, may your face and may your uh, countenance just be the, the magnetic force that guides them down and, and stay right in front of them. So Lord, bless them and keep them. May your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your face toward them. Give them your peace and your rest and your blessing as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Just one example at the outset. It's, it's the foundation for how we have any ability to pray, to talk to God, to approach him. Because if he wasn't for us, if we haven't experienced his unconditional love, all we would experience is the front of that storm. But he brings us into the center of it where we experience freedom and acceptance and forgiveness. And so we can bring all of our joy, all of our fear, all of our needs to God, and he hears it and he responds and he loves us in that. So prayer is one of those opportunities where we can experience more of God's love. If you want to pray immediately after the service, we always have this opportunity in our prayer room, which is right around the corner by that mural. You can pray with people or you can pray alone, however God is leading you. And if you want to loop others into your, into your prayer so that we can be doing this together, please write down any request on one of these cards uh, on your seats. You can drop that in one of the yellow boxes, or you can email prayer at warehouse242.org. So this benediction is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. The first part is all about who God is and the reality of that. And the second part of the letter is all about what we should be and what we should do in response to who God is. But before... Paul transitions to that second part. He launches into this exaltation of worship and, and giving glory to God. And it focuses on his love for us. So receive these words. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love. That surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in grace.